Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. Welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, why there are so many fewer kids playing tackle football in the U.S. And we hear how a football player turned chef has found his home in the kitchen. But first, it's time for the Friday Newscap and some voices from the news this week. We're bringing accountability to taxpayer spending, right? That's something that Arizonans across the state of any political party can get behind. I just want to make sure we're doing this fairly. I, I, like I said, I did not see a Democrat project cut. Some people, unfortunately, who do this to supplement their income are doing it illegally because state law has not properly addressed this. This shouldn't be a crime. Cooking dinner should not be a crime. Making tamales, which is what this bill became about, should not be a crime. I was really happy to hear her plan that would give raises to not just teachers, but also the support personnel. Because as a teacher, I know we're all a team. I see Carrie Lake. Congratulations, Carrie. I spotted her, I have to announce, because she's terrific. She's going to be a senator, a great senator, I predict, right? You're going to be a great senator. Jake Hoffman has been the loudest uh, voice in calling for its full repeal. And I would like to ask him if he wants to stand up to his constituents and say, you don't need the jobs that the LG battery plant in Queen Creek is providing. You know, he's the one that needs to answer for that. Folks, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of this border after four decades. And right now, it's the ugliest I've ever seen it. And joining me to talk about the debate over the future of the Arizona Commerce Authority, dueling proposals to extend Prop 123 and more, our former state school superintendent, Jaime Molera of Molera Alvarez. Good morning, Jaime. Good morning. And Don Penish-Thacker of Agave Strategy. Hi, Don. Hello. So let's start with uh, the governor's budget proposal. Last Friday, after the show, uh, last Friday she released it. Uh, Don, Republican uh, appropriation chairs called it an unserious mess. Uh, She's gotten a lot of praise. She's gotten a lot of criticism from it. What are your sort of main takeaways from what she what she's proposing here? Well, you know, in in a document like this, a proposal like this. A governor has to achieve two aims. So one is to signal her values, to show that she is actually putting dollars and intention behind the, you know, the ideas and the values that she shared in her state of the state and that are held by her party, um, but also be practical and realistic enough to say, you know, two sides are going to have to agree on this. Here are some of the priorities. Here are places that I'm giving and taking. And and so she did that. And this is the reaction that we have every time a governor puts forward a proposal, you know, because we say, ah, that's one side says these ideas are crazy. The other says we're not seeing enough of what we want. And it'll go through that process. Um, It's funny that some of the some of the criticism from Republicans has been that it's chipping away at too many Republican programs because last but last budget, the one that costs so much, um, was predominantly Republican programs. And these, you know, claims of partisanship were not heard at the time that Republicans were getting outsized giveaways. Well, so one of the interesting things about the criticism and and maybe one of the reasons why it was called an unserious mess is that the governor proposed, at least in part, by closing the shortfalls that we're dealing with uh, for this fiscal year next, by 
putting new restrictions on school vouchers on the ESA program and basically doing away with the STO program, the dollar-for-dollar tax credit where people can donate uh, to organizations that give scholarships to go to, to private schools. And Republicans are like, we're not going to do that. So like, what, what's, your next, what's your next idea? Well, and and that's a, the the perfect example of where she has to kind of put her budget where her mouth is, right? She has said that the ESA voucher program is unaccountable; it's costing too much, and so it, it's kind of her responsibility to then follow that kind of statement up with hmm. something in the budget that is back to that like standing by your values, even if she simultaneously knows that Republicans have been crystal clear that they are not going to chip away at the ESA program. But, you know, again, budgets are moral documents. You have to show what you believe, even if you know that that's not the part that's going to get done, or certainly not at least the way you said you'd like it to. I mean, what did you make of what the governor proposed? Well, the first thing that struck me was how much of a difference from last year, because last year, and you can see the governor's administration starting to get their sea legs when it comes to um, putting out a budget, setting their priorities, making the case for what they're doing. Um, Last year, if you recall, they basically took the Joint Legislative Budget Committee's uh, revenue estimates and expenditure estimates on all the agency expenditures hook, line, and sinker. Hmm. So that really set the stage for the legislature then to kind of um, dominate, I guess, the discussion of what was or was not going to happen. Yeah. Um, This time around, it was a little different. I think the governor uh, came out with their own budget uh, recommendations. It was interesting because – uh, the morning that the governor was going to give her well, – the afternoon she was going to give her state of the state, the JLBC, the Joint Legislative Budget Committee, came out and said, oh, by the way, our budget deficit isn't about a billion dollars over the next two years. It's really $1.7 billion yeah, over the next bigger. two years. So I think they wanted to set the stage. Um, but uh, the governor, in my opinion, did a pretty deft job of saying, you know what, we're going to stick to our budget recommendations. We're going to stick to our policies not fall into into the tit for tat at least for now because that's going to come soon enough. Yeah. Well, how do you see this this process going? Because, as Don said, I mean every every year we we go through this. At least when you have a, a Democratic governor and Republican legislature, where the the governor puts out a budget, the Republicans say, "Nah, we don't think so." <laughs> and you can't do this year what they did last year, where everybody got a certain amount of money just to do with what they want. Like they need to close a shortfall this year. So I'm yeah. curious how you see the next few months going. So. In the context of a $16 billion budget over the next two years, right, you got $32 billion that's going to be expended. To deal with uh, a one, let's say it's a $1.5 billion deficit, it, it's not astronomical. I guess, you know, I'm a little scarred from having gone through the Great Recession <laughs> yeah. and the massive uh, cuts that were made at that point. Um, but a lot of it is going to be sweeps. A lot of it is going to be um, curtailing the projects that were supposed to go. Um, now, a lot of those projects, and I was on the show with you criticizing that pork that they basically did in the last session where they gave everybody $20, $30 million and go spend it how you wish. Mm-hmm. Um, that just wasn't good budgeting in my opinion. There really wasn't a focus on what the state was needing to accomplish. But because of those projects, it makes it easier. A lot of them were capital and they were not uh, initiated. So now they can come back and say, well, if they haven't been initiated, we can just say we're not going to do them or we're going to wait to do them until later, until we actually do have the money. So I, I, it makes it easier to put a budget together, in my opinion. But as we heard in the montage from David Livingston, a state lawmaker, most of those 
projects that the governor's looking to claw back are Republican projects. Well, and because the fascinating point of that was because last year, many of the Democrats used their allocation to support a lot of the state agencies or education or, for instance, community colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that was to existing budget structures, whereas a lot of the Republican um, dollars that they expended were on uh, their district initiatives, right? Sidewalks in Globe or... Rodeo grounds. Rodeo grounds in Prescott and all those kinds of things. So it does make it easier for the governor to say, well, wait a minute, there's capital projects and they haven't been initiated. We're going to stop them. As opposed to ripping dollars out of a budget that might be going to state agencies for educational purposes, for instance. So that's, I think, the biggest difference. All right. So, Don, talking about people questioning where state money is going. Let's talk about the Arizona Commerce Authority because Jake Hoffman wants basically wants to stop the Arizona Commerce Authority from existing, uh, citing an Auditor General's report, citing uh, Attorney General Chris Mays' a letter from earlier this week basically saying that these CEO forums are unconstitutional. Is there a, a real danger here that the Commerce Authority could go away? I don't think so. And I think even Hoffman has signaled, well, I'll be open to amendments on this. Um, you know, this is this is a tough one because it's one of those issues that the average voter, a regular person, looks at this and says, how much money was spent whining and dining? You know, CEOs, I mean, they spent, what was it, over $2 million taking a few dozen CEOs to the Super Bowl mm-hmm. and the Phoenix Open. So any reasonable person would look at that and say, you know, that's out of control. But municipalities, mayors, some of our state leaders who participate in this say this is how we show the business community how good it could be for them to to relocate here, to mm-hmm. live here, to give their workers this quality of life. And so often these are going to be people of the same party or with shared interests saying, look, this is extravagant versus we need this kind of opportunity to show off how great our state is. So so I think that they will put some guardrails on. They will limit some things, maybe even budgetary limits to make sure we're not seeing these massive price tags. But I cannot lose the opportunity to quote um, Attorney General Mays quoting the Arizona Supreme Court when they established the gift clause of our Constitution and saying that the, the this gift clause protects against orgies of extravagance. And I think that if you look at some of the spending, again, the average person will say that's over the top. Yes, let's attract business. But, you know, concert tickets, hotels, uh, tailgate parties, maybe that's more than needed. That was not a phrase I had on my bingo card for, for hearing today. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I, I, will, I will say that. Thank you for that. So, Jaime, the, the committee that uh, took this up this week voted to revise or consolidate the agency as part of this sort of regular sunset review that all state agencies go through. Right. We don't really know what revising or consolidating could look like. I mean, do you have any sense of, like, what kinds of guardrails, what kinds of changes they might be looking to put on this agency? No, and I don't think a lot of those members that were a part of that discussion do either. Ah. Uh, you know, it, the one thing that strikes me, and I, I just got to say this, because when this was put into place, and I was around when the ACA was mm-hmm. formed under Governor Brewer yeah. uh, and then expanded to a great extent under Governor Ducey, um, it's funny that you had a lot of Democrats that hated the ACA. They really were absolutely against it. And you can see why Chris Mays, you know, from a more populist standpoint, is saying that this is unconstitutional. But um, at the end of the day, it has to be uh, these orgies of expenditures <laughs> have to be 
uh, a benefit to Arizona, a benefit to the state. That's part of the constitutional right. framework of this. So there is a very strong argument to be made. Um, it was difficult because when Sandra Watson, the, the CEO of the Arizona Commerce Authority, was testifying, she was asked about w- what organizations are you attracting? Well, it was difficult because you don't want to say, well, here's the uh, company that we're trying to get into Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the, the fact of the matter is there has been a massive benefit. You've seen literally billions of dollars of uh, economic development that has occurred, that's come into Arizona by pulling in these organizations and, and certainly our ability to attract mega events like the Super Bowl and the Final Four that's going to be happening here in March, mm-hmm. um, that is huge economic benefit. And it's not just for, for the, those days that the, those games are played. There is a correlation and there's been a lot of economic analysis. The Elliot Pollock's of the world, the Jim Rounds of the world are very strong economists in the state. There's a definite link to these types of events and to companies coming into Arizona or, or individuals, for mm-hmm. that matter, just coming into Arizona because it's, it, it's an ability to showcase our state and the ACA has taken that. And I think the governor has done a very good job of, of rallying the business community, which is interesting because that gives her uh, a form that she really hasn't had of, of her showing herself to say, look, I'm a, a Democrat, but I'm working with the business community to make sure that economic development in Arizona continues. And that's she's in a good spot. That is interesting. All right. That is Jaime Molera, also joined by Don Penish Thacker. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. The Friday Newscap continues in just a moment. Good morning. It's the Friday Newscap on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. My guests this week are Don Penich Thacker of Agave Strategy and Jaime Molera of Molera Alvarez. Guys, let's talk about uh, Prop 123, which uh, is an initiative that was uh, voter approved, barely voter approved uh, several years ago under Governor Ducey's uh, administration. That essentially, it's, it's complicated, but it essentially takes more money out than had been taken from the state land trust to give to schools. Uh, it's set to expire in a, a year or two, and there are now dueling. Uh, pro- uh, proposals for asking voters to extend it. Uh, legislative Republicans have uh, one idea. Governor Hobbs this week released her idea. I mean, I'm curious what you what you make of the two. It seems like the big difference is that the governor's plan would take more money out and mm-hmm. have it go to more things as opposed to the legislative Republicans plan, which is keeping it the same amount and just giving it to teachers. Correct. And then you have uh, State Treasurer Yee saying you can't do anything. Right. <laughs> or you do a lot less. <laughs> So the, the, the Governor Hobbs's plan essentially says we want to increase that amount of what we take out of the state trust land interest at 8.9 percent. From 6.9 percent, I think, is what the, well, that's what the, Republicans what the legislative Republicans want. Are, are proposing. So it does increase a little bit, the Republicans, from what uh, Governor Ducey did in creating this. Um, but the governor's proposal is significant. I mean, you're talking about – $750 million a year in addition that would come into the K-12 system. But, but I think that that is the, the, the big fight with the Republicans. And the Republicans, um, I think, deftly came out. And it was a, a, an interesting alliance between uh, Senate President Warren Peterson, who's part of the Freedom Caucus and you know, one of the more um, hard-right uh, conservatives in the state legislature, and Representative Matt Gress, who is the budget director for Governor Ducey, seen as more uh, moderate, if you will. But they came together and put together a proposal that said, yes, we want to do this. Yes, we want to extend one, two, three, but we only want it to go to teachers and teacher salaries. 
Now, we can argue whether that's good or bad. I, I think there's some legal issues because that uh, one, two, three, remember, settled a lawsuit. Right. That the school district yep. sued saying that they weren't meeting their obligations and had won. And so that so that's another piece of this. But from a political standpoint, that is a pretty deft maneuver. Because what they're saying is, look, we want to give teachers. We know teachers, uh, the shortage is real. We know there's um, uh, a lack of pay. That's probably the biggest part of it. Uh, so that's where they position themselves. And right now, if they were to band together, the legislature doesn't have to go through the governor because they could do a referral. And referrals in our state, uh, if they just have a simple majority in the House and the Senate – it doesn't need a governor. They just go right to the signature. ballot. It just go right yeah. to the ballot. So that's where you might have some competing uh, proposals. So the governor's trying to use her power of persuasion and her bully pulpit to make the case about the legal arguments, as well as all of the other folks in the K twelve system that probably need some resources as well. Well, so Don, how do you see those conversations playing out? Because to Jaime's point, the legislature doesn't need the governor's buy-in on what they're going to do. They can just pass it themselves and send it to the ballot. So do you see the governor having input here, having a role in terms of trying to maybe shape what the legislature sends, assuming that they send something? Yeah, well, it's still, even though it goes straight to the voters, it's still important that both sides see enough good in it that they will you know, stump for it, that they will be out there asking their constituencies to vote yes on it. Um, As we referenced the first time Prop 123 went to the ballot, it barely passed. And I remember those were it was a fight. Um, And so it's important that even though Governor Hobbs is not going to probably get, you know, everything that she's asking for, that that it a little bit gets loosened up. Um, I know for a fact that a lot of teachers, the people who would be the sole benefactors of the Republicans' plan, are saying, oh, come on, like, yes, increase my pay. Thank you. I appreciate that. I need that. But the support staff, a school does not function without those folks. You know, it's fine and well if teachers are better paid if we don't have bus drivers to bring the kids to the school because that is what Governor Hobbs' proposal says. Like, let's also give a pay raise to the to the nurses, to the bus drivers. Let's also make sure that our school buildings are safe and up to date so that learning can happen. And so I think that the Republicans should, you know, include some of these very good ideas. And Governor Hobbs will, of course, cheerlead for something that's not in her exact plan, but does a little bit more for schools. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see how those two sides kind of come together and if there are true negotiations. Um, one one other bill that uh, started its uh, legislative journey this week that I think for a lot of people kind of came out of left field last year, the so-called tamale bill that would have allowed people to make things, foods like tamales in their homes and sell them. Uh, the governor vetoed it, surprising a lot of people, angering a lot of people right. last year. Um, there's some, still some question, though, Don, about whether Governor Hobbs is on board with what Representative Grantham has put forward this year. Well, I think, uh, interestingly enough, we so rarely get to look at our Arizona legislature and say things are working the way they should. This is the democratic (laughs) process. But really, I contend that this is one of them. You know, last year's bill, it was, I think it was very over-dramatized that it got vetoed because it was health department concerns saying we want to see a little bit more here. A great example that I I care about is, you know, are there pets in the home of this home kitchen? Are there pet allergens mm. that a consumer should be allowed to know about, right? Um, 
should the home cook, let's be able to find out who the home cook was. Let's have information on their licensure number or their certificate, whatever it's called. So thanks to this process, the bill is getting more feedback. It's getting improved. And I do predict that it is going to get to a place that already has bipartisan support, that it will get signed. And these improvements are good things that any regular person would like to see. I mean, this was described last year as kind of a self-inflicted wound on the governor when she vetoed it, because, as I mentioned, it ticked off a whole lot of people. Do you see this year as maybe a, a redeeming opportunity for, for the governor and the legislature? I, I do, and I'll make a prediction. I think there's massive bipartisan support. It got out uh, unanimous yeah. from the committee. Um, uh, I think uh, come Cinco de Mayo, uh, Governor Hobbs <laughs> is going to sign the bill with great fanfare, and there's going to be tamales all over the state capitol. Okay. All right. We'll all have to go down and, and partake because obviously they are delicious. Is this like is this a sign of anything, though? Like we, we've talked so much, Jaime, about – sort of the relationship between the governor and her staff and the legislature last year and how in certain ways it maybe wasn't as good as it could and Correct. should have been. Is this maybe a sign that things could be getting better? You mentioned the governor sort of getting her sea legs earlier with the budget. Is this maybe another example of that kind of thing? I do. I, I think there's a lot of growing planes. I, and I've been part of a, a new administration where it takes a while to yeah. really understand the, the authority that a governor has and the power that a governor has. Uh, but also the ability to influence and, and build coalitions. Um, the governor uh, brought in uh, Chad Campbell as her chief of staff, mm-hmm. uh, widely regarded as very um, an adept political player in the system, uh, has a lot of good reputation within the business community and other community organizations. So that makes a difference. So when you have folks that know how to not just put together a, a legislative game plan, but to build those coalitions that could back it up. So, for instance, we were talking a lot about what's going on with the ACA. Mm-hmm. Um, the governor has been making the rounds to a lot of these business groups, soliciting their support. Last year, you didn't see a lot of that kind of uh, effort. So that's where I think her ability to to galvanize these community organizations and particularly business organizations will go a long way to uh, helping achieve a lot of her agenda. Don, briefly before we wrap up, do you, do you agree with that, that the governor sort of and her staff are sort of figuring it out, figuring out how to how to be governor? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really clear. Anybody who's down there working, you know, uh, talking across the constituencies across the state, it feels like they have found their stride and they're making real progress and building real relationships. All right. That is Don Penish-Thacker, Jaime Molera. Thanks, guys, for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, how a former pro football player turned his love of tacos into what some are calling one of the best new restaurants of last year. But first, by most indications, TV ratings and attendance at games among them, football is as popular as ever in the U.S. But according to new reporting from The Washington Post, the game is undergoing a dramatic demographic shift. There are fewer kids playing tackle football, but those drops are not uniform among different racial groups and those in different geographical areas and at different socioeconomic levels. There have also been efforts at the state level to ban some kids from playing tackle football. California Governor Gavin Newsom this week said he'd veto a bill in that state that banned tackle football for kids younger than 12. 
Dave Scheinin is a sports reporter for The Washington Post and was one of the reporters on this series of stories. He joins me. And Dave, in one of the pieces, you describe a steep, steady decline in the number of high school football players nationwide. But it seems like it's not so much a question of how many kids are playing tackle football, but rather who is playing tackle football. I think that's correct. Uh, the the story of youth uh, football participation falling is kind of an old story. This has been going on for maybe 15 years or so, um, and is measurable at the youth and high school levels. But I think what's new about this project and what we found is that that decline, which has been more or less across the board in the U.S., has not been uniform. And it's been, uh, you know, it is falling on uh, different communities, different demographics. And it's uh, sort of dividing the country in many ways into places where they play football in large numbers and places where they they abandon it in large numbers. And so it's, it's created some very stark dichotomies across the country. Well, and what's interesting is it seems like, based on your reporting, that in many ways the divisions are based on political differences and socioeconomic status. Yeah, that's that's right. And and in that regard, we, we were fortunate that in 2012, the Washington Post, we have our own polling department, and uh, they commissioned a poll that, among other things, asked people, Americans, their attitudes towards children playing youth football. And that was in 2012. So we were able to replicate those questions and ask a new pool of, um, of, of participants their own views on, on children participating in youth football, and we could compare the two. And a lot of the numbers were the same. A lot of the data were, were very much unchanged, but there was a massive divergence between 2012 and 2023 in political orientation and how those different groups uh, viewed kids playing football. So white liberals, um, you know, were, were roughly not very far off from conservatives in terms of how they viewed the sport in 2012. But in 2023, uh, there was a vast divergence, 30 or 40 points, uh, percentage point difference in their attitudes towards kids playing youth football. So it, it really showed, you know, something that is detectable in all phases of American life now, this this political divide in all things cultural and societal. And interestingly, you also found, it seems, that in in many places, uh, black students, Hispanic students, uh, lower income students were more likely to be playing than their white counterparts or their more affluent counterparts, right? Yeah, in many cases, that that didn't stand up all the way across the board. Um there are certainly pockets of the South, for example, where you know affluent white kids are, are still playing football in huge numbers. Mm. So there's very much a cultural component to this as well. But in general, you are finding that you know the the sport is 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 more now than ever the domain of you know historically oppressed minorities, for whom the risk reward calculus sort of still tilts. Uh, in the direction of playing, and also you know white conservatives, where in places, especially in the South, where football is the unquestioned king of of the fall, and also where you know it's seen as being part of a America, being being part of being American is is playing football, and and I think that there's components there of 
the way that the NFL and, and the, the, the football industry has aligned itself with the military and patriotism. So there, there's a lot of very fascinating, you know, dynamics at work here. For families who have kids who, who don't play tackle football or who are encouraging their, their kids not to play tackle football, how much is the risk of concussions and brain damage playing into that? Well, you know, it's it's difficult to say, of course, but I mean, there there are a lot of factors contributing to the decline in participation, and and some of those factors are not specific to football. You know, they they involve things like the specialization in sports, especially sports like baseball, soccer, and basketball. But there's also you know universal uh, forces, uh, you know, working against kids that, that want to keep them on their devices and keep them, uh, you know, linked into video games and whatnot. So there's a lot of factors, but, but the one thing that's different about football is that it is inherently dangerous. The, the, the act of playing the sport, even without the massive hits that you see, that you could see in, in, in a sport like soccer or lacrosse or, or hockey, the inherent Every single play of football uh, is dangerous, and that that's the difference. Yeah. Well, so then what do folks say about the future of high school football? Like, it's almost unimaginable, at least in some parts of the country, to think that, you know, Friday Night Lights would not be a thing anymore. But it seems like, based on your reporting, that there are some people who are envisioning that kind of future. Yeah, th- there are no shortage of people who, who foresee that. Um I don't know that that happens in our lifetimes. I, I, I just, you know, we just don't know. I do think, though, that, um, you know, youth football, youth tackle football, um, talking about kids under the age of, let's say, 12 or maybe 14, I do think that could go away in our lifetimes. Um, and I do think that there's a, a distinct possibility, you know, in, in five or 10 years, we, we may see no more youth football for the youngest kids. Well, so what does all of that mean, along with the increased popularity of flag football, including coming to the Olympics uh, for the next summer games? What does all that mean for college football and the NFL? Um, We should also mention that ratings for those games and attendance is still really, really high. Absolutely. I think that, you know, we're a long, long way, if ever, towards, you know, college football and the NFL going away. You know, the NFL has embraced flag football to to a, a startling degree in the last, say, five or 10 years. And I think that that is largely a function of them uh, understanding that the, the participation rates are going down, continue to go down, and they see flag as a new pathway into the game. And their their hope for sure is that those kids who are introduced to the game via flag eventually convert into tackle football players when they reach high school age or whatever age that is. Um, And even if they don't, you know, the NFL is creating new fans, a new pipeline for fans. And they're also bringing women and girls into the sport via flag. And so, you know, it, it really is a brilliant way for the NFL to keep their pipeline full. I do think, though, that we're going to, you know, what's going to be crucial is seeing the first uh, deep statistical studies that that tell us whether those flag kids are converting into tackle players as teenagers and high schoolers. Sure. Interesting. All right. That is Dave Shinin with The Washington Post. Dave, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And now it's time for the first edition of a new series here on the show called Chef Talk. In this series, we'll sit down with chefs of all stripes here in the Valley, from fine dining rooms to nightclub kitchens, and find out what makes them tick. Today, meet Chef Lawrence Smith. He's the man behind what Esquire and Bon Appetit both named one of the best new restaurants in the country last year, Chilte. It's a Mexican-inspired spot inside the Egyptian Hotel, the Egyptian Motor Hotel on Grand Avenue. But it began in a tent during the pandemic, with Smith and his wife making tacos at farmer's markets. We were trying to find like traditional elements, and we're trying to find other cultural elements that all kind of tie together and are really harmonious. Smith didn't start out as a chef. Far from it. He spent most of his life playing football. He had one goal, to make it to the NFL, which he did very briefly before finding his home in the culinary world. My co-host Lauren Gilger sat down with him recently to hear his story and find out what he cooks when he's at home. Football is, is my first passion. It's what I did all growing up, and it's just I stuck with it, stuck with it. It's everything I, I was striving for was to make it to the NFL. I kind of decided that at a young age is what I wanted to do. So it was really easy to be so hyper-focused on that um, for like 20 years, right? It made it really easy to make everything else in my life going towards that, that mission, right? Like my family supported me. How, how was I eating was going towards that. How was I training was going towards that. Like, yeah, I didn't love school, but I did it because the purpose was to have grades to be on the field to, to play. So that was really just like, that's my drive. It's my passion. I still love it. I still miss it. I was able to make my dream happen for a short moment after college. I played at University of Akron, um, and I got a little a little taste when I got picked up by the Colts in 2015, which was amazing to play some football um, out there with the Colts, training with the Ravens, I think, during camp. Um, it was really short-lived. You know, there was a lot of injuries. Some guys got hurt. I was a new guy, small school. Um, so I, I got, you know, kicked out. And I just chased it around, kind of chased around the country, trained in Colorado and L.A., and when it's time to hang up the cleats, I ended up here in Phoenix. You made it in, right? Mm-hmm. And then you end up here. What happened? It was kind of just time to go a different direction, hang up the cleats, right? You start aging out. I didn't have an agent that I needed to have to represent me the right way, right? So just kind of seeing where I needed to go, needing to be able to support myself. Um, I just I transitioned. I, I went and jumped into the office and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> so I did like, I was like recruiting for tech firms, like, staff recruiting right for a few months which it was cool I got to learn a lot of like techie stuff and back end like security clearance stuff and coding and like python um, which was really cool I'm super interested in that but sitting in that office like trying to hit those numbers was just like it just wasn't for me right so I applied to the great food truck race and we made it to the finals of casting like we made a little team and we made it to finals of casting and that was kind of my first inkling of like hey like maybe this culinary thing is the fit for you right so I jumped into that. We made a finals of casting. I said, if we get in, we go do this. If we don't get in, I go to culinary school. Like, I quit this shit, go to culinary school. Um, <laughs> didn't get in, quit that shit, went to culinary school out in Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was a natural fit, you know? Like, all the symmetry of what football is to the kitchen, the team, the calling shots, the plays, the prep, the practice. You know, every day is a game day at the restaurant, but you get to kind of prep and practice before that, the camaraderie, the pressure, um, all that was, like, really familiar to me. So it was a really natural fit um, for me to jump into, and I really enjoyed it. Had you always cooked, like, when you started the food truck race? Like, you were 
totally green to cooking or did you have a little a little experience in your pocket? I mean, just a home cook, you know, like I have three siblings, all younger, mom and dad. And it was just like, you know, we're running to sports games and to this and to that and cheer practice and that. And I start hitting my mom with like, hey, can I have eggs? Can I have this and that? She's like, yo, if you need some special sports diet, you got to start cooking it. Right. So <laughs> but I've always been in the kitchen, like with my parents and stuff. So. You know, my dad was a cook. They cook at home. We'd always sit down for family dinner. So it's always been there, like, you know, in the background. And then I start cooking my little sports nutrition meals. And then that carried over into college. We'd always kind of have, like, cookouts and bring a potluck and, you know, cook and grill and do our little, like, multi-team gatherings, which was super fun. And everyone loved to do that. So it's always just been a kind of a thread, like, carrying through from thing to thing, um, which is why I think it was also such a natural progression and kind of where I landed. So tell me about the the sort of discovery of this when you go to culinary school and you kind of felt it, it probably felt like home a little bit for the first time since having left football, which probably wasn't easy also. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, the sense of like team and purpose um, definitely felt so familiar and felt like home, felt comfortable and right. Having executive chefs and teachers and professors and, and things that are they're like in there with you doing it, you know, it's like a on-field coach was super familiar, something I gravitated to, something I could envision myself being. I was like, I can get there. That's something I would want to do. My dad's been an entrepreneur, like, all growing up, so I always had the entrepreneurial brain kind of in the works as well. So I was like, all right, I want to have my own stuff. It was really easy to kind of find that new hyper-focus and that new passion for that the second career. It's really interesting. Like, I've never thought of all the parallels there would be between, like, professional sports and cooking in a kitchen but of course, it makes total sense when you put it that way. So you, you graduate from culinary school. You started working in restaurants here in the Valley, some pretty high-end ones. Tell us about sort of landing here at Chilte and like the concept there. Yeah, so I was in culinary school. Second I got out of basics, I was like, I need to jump in, right? Like, and I think that's one of the greatest things I did pull from culinary school was the basics. It is what helped me thrive and grow super fast, being able to apply the basic, then apply my drive, quick learning hustle, right? Sleeping in parking lots, being able to just apply that grit, that two-a-day grit to it really helped me like do like six years of work in three years, right? I was able to jump in. I worked at Fine Dining. Renee from Bacanora, he actually brought me back around. He said, dude, I'm going to open up this kitchen in Tempe, Ghost Ranch. So I got to learn like the Mexican, the Southwest, like the Sonoran Mexican, all that type of stuff is really um, what started hitting home with me. And those flavors really resonated with me. They really read like like soul food of the Southwest, like I just understood it. So that cuisine is why what stuck with me, what drove me into Chilte eventually was like, all right, I'm going to start with the taco shop, you know, on the street, just kind of, I want to build my own thing. I don't want to always be under someone else's shadow. So when pandemic hit, I had that base, you know, those few years of experience, that base stuff, I was able to apply it in. I started off just me and my uh, wife uh, in a grill, jumping in during the pandemic at the farmer's markets, started Chilte, um, and we just really built it up, bare bones, you know, no money in the account, uh, 10 by 10 tent, one grill and a tortilla press. And <laughs> we just tried to make it work. So we had a lot of days, no sales. Um, and finally it caught on. Finally, we got some traction and built it from there. I mean, it's it's quite a thing to take nothing and turn it into something. And now you're in this beautiful space at this hip hotel. You just got, you know, a big write up in Bon Appetit. Like this has probably hit at a really interesting moment for you. Like I'm sitting here with you at a, at a big moment in your career. I'm hoping what's this been like this this turn of late? 
it it just feels really good. I mean, getting the recognition is nice. It's been a brutal, brutal summer, so getting some people in the door is even more nice. Being able to continue to really just like kind of keep our dream alive, right? Um, because yeah, the pride and the the recognition of all the hard work is well and good, and I love it, and we do need that as well. But more so, like what we started Chelsea to do was to like support our community more. So being able to keep our people employed, pay them appropriately. Um, keep our creative going um, is a lot more important. So that's what I'm really excited for. Yeah. All right. So final couple of questions for you. Ones I ask everyone we interview in this series. First of all, this is always a weird question for chefs, but what is in your refrigerator at home? Like what do you cook when you're not in the kitchen here at the restaurant? It's so tough because I don't eat, <laughs> which is terrible. But let's see at home. Usually it's like, it's really like simple stuff, right? Like I usually like keep, a couple salsas around. I keep, like, our salsa matcha in there. I keep um, just some, like, random salsas. And then I'm usually, like, and this comes from my football thing, like, because this is what I went home and ate last night was eggs and a tortilla and salsa. Like, that's it. Or, like, eggs and toast and cottage cheese. Like, I just eat, like, the real simple, quick things. All right. And final question for you. Tell us, you know, your favorite thing to cook on your menu right now and, you know, the inspiration behind it. Yeah. I think, well, our inspiration behind it is always kind of finding, like, a common like cultural cross-cultural thread i wouldn't ever call it fusion it's always coming from like a mexican latin base as well as incorporating some of our street beginnings to it and some of like the modern like little little twists and and funk a lot of the dishes resonate like that and then we have a couple fun ones that are a little more creative like the black pink which is going to be you know a chocolate aguachile and shrimp we're using like argentinian prawns so we have like a element of fine dining to it we're doing a black uh, chocolate aguachile that's the black portion the prawns are the pink portion so cucumber avocado house tostada a little uh, local uh, tallow aioli that we do it's a little sweet smooth smoky spicy citrus you know definitely a different riff on it but it's a fun plate and i came up with it in the test kitchen for chop because i was on a chocolate episode and i was like i gotta get chocolate and shrimp together with garlic let's do it so <laughs> we just did that in the test kitchen it was fun not an easy task all right chef lawrence smith thank you so much for having me out yeah pleasure thank you It's well known that Phoenix grew substantially in the decades following World War II as air conditioning became affordable in homes and development accelerated. And along with this growth was a flourish of pride Phoenicians took in hospitality and fine dining choices. Destinations like Newton's Prime Rib, Green Gables, and Monte's La Casa Vieja available to both residents and tourists. These culinary options, as well as family-friendly places, helped announce that Phoenix of the 1950s and 60s was on par with other major cities. One artifact left behind from this golden era is the menus from these local dining establishments. The show's Sativa Peterson visited Isabel Cazares, librarian at the Arizona Historical Society, where Valley menus from throughout the decades have been collected. And they started their conversation by talking about what kind of information can be learned from looking at menus. I think they're really fascinating on a, a lot of different levels. First of all, the graphic choices as well as the types of food, uh, different pricing as well is really a key to what type of food was available, how restaurants were pricing, and a general culture of uh, dining out can kind of be seen through the menus. There are over 250 menus in the Arizona menu collections, and Cazares began by showing me a selection. Some 
Simply designed with clean lines and bright hues, others crafted with velvet or bound with cord, some themed and others fantasy-fueled. It's a dark forest green. It has kind of a, a Polynesian-style design. Um, it's Trader Vic's, which some might know for the architectural style of the building. It's kind of a little bit of a unique standout. There was that pull to uh, Polynesian or island-type themed restaurants uh, for a while. And this one is really an interesting mix because they've got Chinese food on there and um, barbecue and omelets. And so you can really see that it's kind of a theme, but I I don't think that they were pulling exactly from a, a Polynesian culture there, but just perhaps just the design was appealing. Um, we've also got things like the salt cellar, which many people in the Tempe area might know. That one is just kind of a straight one-page menu, but rather large, actually. A lot of these are oversized. It's got that salmon-esque color on it, and there's salmon crepes and seafood, but uh, oysters and all of these delicacies really of the sea I think is a trend that you see as, you know, you're in the the 70s and 80s and we're importing a lot more of our food from other places. Um, But, you know, you've got some, you know, some standards here that you might find still in the valley, like a a Jordan's Fine Mexican food menu. But it's it's got a nice black uh, background with a kind of an adobe a uh, Spanish Revival building on the front, and it's Jordans in red. And then you open it, and it's got just a splash of red, uh, bright red in the Mexican dinners. You know, everybody gets hungry when they look at our menu collection. You've got, you know, beef tacos and tostadas and enchiladas for three fifty-five. Um, the color is very vibrant. Oh, absolutely. I think the font choices really tell you a lot about the era that they're from. So uh, this one is just really a nice, heavily stylized font that um, really attracts the eye. So the menus are really part of the experience still. Okay, a lot of these you you might have to guess because they don't actually have their date. Yeah, that's interesting. Unlike uh, like a newspaper or something else, these really don't have dates. Yeah. Uh, you have to do a little detective work, I imagine, to place what era. You absolutely do. It's difficult to decipher, so that's why sometimes the price is your best clue. Okay, so what are what are we looking at here? Yeah, we have a wonderful Westward Home menu, and you can see the building very clearly. 1920s cars hanging out out front and awnings, people walking around, and the building is in a wonderful kind of pen-lined sketch. So it looks like we are celebrating the holiday season with dancing, um, orchestras, and different things on the menu, too. They are using, like, royal squab and um, brown olivet potatoes, uh, goose liver and uh, all these extra special items avocado supreme in phoenix and all these ingredients i think we have to remember might have taken a little bit longer to get there um, than they do today i imagine just the act of looking at these old menus can spur memories for people prompting them to remember all kinds of things about the valley 
from nearby businesses to special events. Absolutely. They're pieces of memory for a lot of people. They'll come in and tell me about a restaurant, but then they'll say, oh, we, we always went there after the game or when we were going to this special, uh, you know, amusement park or whatever they're thinking about. It, it, it involves a story. So they're thinking about how that restaurant fit into their daily life or if it was a special occasion, um, why would they go? Um, who might have been seen there, you know. So those stories can also help us pinpoint um, individuals in history. Um, but I also believe that a lot of people might come in for the data. Uh, what are we eating in the valley? What is the pricing of that? That kind of uh, data is very helpful for researchers because there is less uh, less focus on it, but food history is just as important as um, other other avenues of history for us. Um, knowing what we want to spend our money on leisurely or uh, otherwise is important for kind of getting a, a cultural sense of the valley at that time. Do any local chefs visit to check out the menu collection? You know, we are encouraging chefs to do that, but We've had some success in the recent years. This is really just a reminder that the chefs are inspiring people now to become um, chefs of their own. And keeping you know menus is going to, to have those people hopefully come in and be inspired by those menus and continue looking towards the past for, while they're cooking for a future um, residence of Arizona. So I think there's definitely momentum for us to have more chefs come in and be inspired by this material. That was Isabel Cazares, librarian and archivist at the Arizona Historical Society in Tempe, which houses the Arizona menu collections. Members of the public can visit by appointment. You can see photos of the menus on our website at theshow.kjzz.org. For KJZZ's The Show, I'm Sativa Peterson. And that'll do it for this Friday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. A reminder, if you want to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Instagram at KJZZ The Show. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Have a great rest of your day. Have a terrific weekend. Hope to have you right back here on Monday. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.